0: So today we're studying, uh, continuing our study of Paul and his theology. This is our second lesson on the church. And it's a lesson where we're branching out a little bit. And we're dealing with a passage of scripture. That if I had been a little more responsible, I would have challenged you in in either last week's lesson or in my email this week. To read three chapters of scripture before you came this morning. I've been asked uh, for seven years to teach on these three chapters and I've put it off till now but I'm ready if you are so what we're dealing with today are Romans chapters 9 10 and 11 and most any scholar you look at will say these are definitely three of the the most difficult chapters of Paul to understand most scholars will go ahead and say don't say one of this is the most difficult part of Paul's writings to understand. It doesn't get any tougher. And so we're going to try and deal with this in the confines of this short Sunday school class. I've given you a handout, but even the handout's not as thorough as, as you wouldn't want it to be if you did a fuller study. So I challenge you right now to go ahead and do a fuller study and let this be kind of a, a compass that gives you some sense of direction... ...to better understand these issues. Uh, Now, having said all of that as background, i got to ask you something. In December of 1956, a TV show made its debut, I think, on CBS. It's a show that came on and off the air many times. Did you ever see the TV show To Tell the Truth? Some of you have, those in my generation at least and above... Um, It was a fascinating show. It was a show where three different uh, contestants would come out and one of them would be real and the other two would pretend to be the real person. And there would be a guest panel of four uh, uh, questioners who would question the guests and then would decide which one was the real one. And then at the end, the real one would stand up and you'd see if anybody fooled anybody. And it's amazing to go back and look at some of these because it's, th- there were some amazing people that became famous later but weren't famous when they were first on the show. So I pulled a little bit of one of the clips just to sort of... Number one, what is your name, please? My name is Orville Redenbacher. Number 2. My name is Orville Redenbacher. Number 3. My name is Orville Redenbacher. And you might ask who is Orville Redenbacher? Well, as you can notice popcorn is a poppin or will be any second and not surprisingly. Now, this show came on this episode before Orville Redenbacher became a household name through his own commercials. In fact, his popcorn wasn't for sale uh, uh, much of anywhere at the time. And this was a huge advertisement for his popcorn and, and, and got him famous. The guests, I mean, the four uh, panelists would ask questions. Uh, Joe Gargiola was one of them. And, and they would go through and ask the questions. Then at the end, they would vote, who is the real Uh, uh, Orville Redenbacher, and everybody voted for that first fella, number one. Here was the result. Will the real gourmet popcorn king, Mr. Orville Redenbacher, please stand up, sir? Well. Ah! (laughs) And everybody was surprised. Well, this is our uh, theme show for class this week, because this week we're going to try and figure out who the real Israel is. And at the end of class, we'll ask, will the real Israel please stand up? Let me tell you why. There is a problem that I have found in my understanding of Scripture growing up. As I have processed Scripture through the 49 years of my life, I have grown to understand that that, that some things have always stood out to me problematic. Have you ever found problems that you just needed to try and wrap your head around and try to understand. Well, here's the problem that I want to put out. If you were to start reading in Genesis, you would find over and over God making a promise like this one I've pulled out of Genesis 17. God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations For an everlasting covenant. And I will give it to you and to your offspring after you. All the land of Canaan. For an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now that's a promise that God made. And he made it in that instance to Abraham. But God made the same promise later. To Abraham's son Isaac. And you'll find a third patriarch gets that promise. Jacob so we've got this promise being made by God and yet we live in a day and in an age where now some will say but wait Israel now occupies the land well they don't really occupy all of the land that was there and the promise through all the generations of God being their God is a very difficult promise to see exactly how it's fit together. And, and what does that have to do with us as the church? I remember a few months ago, we had a speaker from Jews for Jesus. And he was speaking from the pulpit. And he said, now Jews for Jesus may seem a shocking phrase to a lot of people. But I promise you, he said, if you go back 1950 years, the shocking idea was that there could be Gentiles for Jesus. Because the Jews came first. And so the question is, as we consider more of Paul's teaching on the church, how does the church figure in with these prophecies and promises about the Jews? Where does the church fit within Israel and the promises? Will the real people of promise, will the real Israel please stand up is the question. Who is the real Israel? See, scholars have looked at those passages over the last 2,000 years and debated it. I'm going to throw out three different views for you. Three different potentials for who the real Israel is. Potential number one, some folks believe that Israel, the physical Israel, has been replaced by the church, who is the spiritual Israel. And so these folks will find those physical promises that God made and interpret them spiritually and say that they apply to the church. There's a second candidate for being the real people of promise and that's the nation of Israel itself. The actual descendants, genetic descendants of Abraham and they are just on hold for getting those promises but before God ...finishes with this world, those promises will come back to them. And this is a view that views uh, this as as an end game that, that right now is just on pause. Then there's a third view of who the real Israel is. And that is that there is a portion of Israel which are believers in Jesus the Lord. A portion of the seed of Abraham that put their faith in Christ... And they are part and parcel with the church itself. The the Gentile aspects of the church have merged together with the Hebrew aspects. So with those three candidates to tell the truth, the show can begin as we try and ask ourselves, what does Paul teach? Let me develop each of them just a little bit further. Let's start with the idea of Israel has been replaced in those promises by the church. People who believe this will say that the church is the spiritual Israel. And so you find Israel as a nation and a genetic reality from Abraham. But because Israel repudiated their end of the deal if you will. Because of Israel's rebellion, they were replaced by the church. And the church is now the spiritual Israel. So you spiritualize those promises and you apply them to the church. The Jews, they lost that call and blessing. And God transferred those promises to the church. This is the idea. The idea then is that just as Solomon's temple was there, it's now just a model ...of the church, which is the real temple of God... ...referencing Paul, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. And so uh, uh, these people... ...argue that this is what we have. and We have an eternal Jerusalem that's going to come down... ...that will belong to the church. And you can take all of these promises that applied to Israel... ...that God will be there. God. That applies to the church. That they will inherit the promised land. That's the spiritual promised land and the kingdom of God. And that applies to the church. And in essence, the model that would have a physical Israel... ...has been seen as a foreshadowing of the actual real chosen people of God... Which are the church And so those promises Which were physical in appearance In actuality are spiritual Promises that find their fulfillment In the church Do you see that person That contestant By the way Like contestant number one In the episode we have I find that contestant gets a lot of votes But I don't think that contestant Is the right one Justin Martyr was an early Christian apologist. He wrote around 150, maybe 155, a defense of his faith. It's called A Dialogue with Trypho the Jew. And in the dialogue, Justin Martyr is trying to explain how the church and Christianity is right compared to Judaism. And Justin explains that the the, the real promises of God were the spiritual Israel. The descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Those belong to the church. It's it's we who've been led to God through crucified Christ who are the spiritual Israel. Now this was an argument you've got to remember. That until the UN recognized uh, uh, Israel taking some Palestinian land in 1947 that the Jews didn't inhabit the promised land, really. At least since 120, 130 A.D. And if you go back before that, in the 67 to 72 A.D. range, where Titus and the Romans annihilated, decimated the Jewish population, destroyed the temple... Justin Martyr's writing at a time where for over a lifetime, there really hasn't been Jews in the promised land in the sense at least that God had prophesied. And so uh, 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 what Justin Martyr did is he'd look at these words of Paul in Galatians 6, 16, or here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he saw it as applying in part to a spiritual Israel, the church. Okay? Now, contestant number two. Israel is on hold. Now this is one that's probably going to have a number of folks in here. By the way, I'll bet a number of folks in here agree with number one. I'll bet a number of folks in here agree with number two. And then there hopefully are a number of folks who agree with number three. Which is at least where one of us is. And I'll have a shot at showing you why. But number two, these are folks who said God promised it to Israel and God doesn't lie. Which I agree with. God did promise, make a promise to Israel. To the descendants of Abraham and God does not lie. God's not unable to keep his word. God wasn't fuzzy about the future or his commitment Some will say it's just a matter of time till God comes back and keeps his promise. And they would point to the the fact that Israel is now inhabiting at least part of the land that God had promised to give them. When that seems miraculous after over a thousand five hundred years of it being gone. In fact, it's kind of miraculous that Jews exist as a people much less as a nation. And clearly the hand of God must be in that somewhere. Another statement to which I will agree to, to some degree as well. But these folks say that it's just a matter of time. God's going to keep his promise. God's going to be faithful to the, to, the, to the descendants of Abraham and the way that he said it. Right now Israel's just being Israel but give them time and they will change. And, and uh, again, this is something like the first point where I see a measure of truth in what's being said. But I don't think Paul would say Israel is on hold. I think Paul would go with contestant number three the merger theory that believing Israel is part of God's church. And believing Israel has promises of God, which are promises of Israel. But they're part of the church. Now, we know some things about this. We know that God promised a covenant through Abraham, but it was never to all of Abraham's descendants. Go back and read the, descendant, or read the passages. It talks about a promise to his descendants through the ages, but it doesn't say to every descendant of Abraham. That promise will be true. It was always just through a portion, a remnant is the biblical word. and there's a whole theology uh, uh, built around this, called remnant theology. But the Old Testament is a story of God's remnant people. It was never a situation where every one of the descendants was covered by the promise. And so, God promised a covenant through Abraham, but it was always through a remnant of Abraham. And then, God kept that covenant in Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ descended bodily through Abraham? Absolutely. He is offspring of Abraham, and in Jesus Christ, God's promises were totally kept. God also has now created or dispensed, proclaimed maybe a better word. God has a new covenant that's even greater than the covenant he made with Abraham. A new covenant that's grander. A new covenant that does far more than dispose of a piece of property. There is a new covenant that God has that is in Jesus Christ. And it applies to the church, whether you're Jewish by ethnicity or not. It's no longer an ethnic issue. The promises of God apply whether you're Jew, Gentile, slave, free, red and yellow, black and white. Doesn't matter. It's not a question of your genetics It's not a question of who your parents were. It's not a question of who your people were. It's not a question of where you were born. It's not a question of what color hair you have, color eyes you have, color skin you have, or color toenails you painted yesterday. It applies to the church, this new covenant. So let's break this down for just a minute. When God promises... Look at how Paul says this. Let's use a little bit of the the Romans passage for a minute. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6, Romans 9, let's start in verse 6. Paul probes this in the same light that we're probing it now, saying, you know, in essence, gee, did God lie? Did he fail to keep his word? And Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham just because they're his offspring. But Abraham was told through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, Abraham had two kids. One from Sarah, one from Hagar. It was never through all of Abraham's offsprings. It was through Isaac. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It's the children of the promise who are the offspring. It's who God selected. It's not just automatic genetics. There is God involved in this. This is what the promise said about this same time next year. I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. This is after Abraham's already had the son by Hagar. It continues. And not only so. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man. Let's don't dual spouse it. One man, our forefather Isaac. Even though they were not yet born and hadn't done anything good or bad. So that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of what anybody's doing, just because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it 's written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated, and the thrust of this passage is that god God never made that promise to every one of the descendants. That promise was always, always just to a remnant to the to the ones of choice now. In this regard, I want us to talk about Paul's analogy that he uses of an olive tree. This is a very important analogy, and I don't know how familiar you are with it. Hal could probably do this better than me because he lives in olive country. But let me try to break it down for you. Hey, 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 hey. Looks to me like you're about to get into something that you may not know that much about. You don't strike me as the farming type. Fortunately for you, I am. So, uh, you just sit back and let me do some talking for a minute. Well, here we are, checking out the olive tree. Good to see you. Hope you got your farmware on. What you got here is your basic, well-tended olive tree. You got good, vibrant growth. You got branches with life and green leaves. It's sculpted, it's tailored well. This olive tree belongs to a man who takes care of business. All right, now here we got a problem. We got the olive tree, but you can see this thing's not been taken care of. It looks wild, it looks mangy. It looks like Lewis's hair on a bad hair day. What are we gonna do? We got some live growth here, but we got these dead twigs that are absolutely useless. All they're doing is, is taking up space and messing up our tree. So a good man, a good gardener, is going to come in, take his shears, take that bad growth off of there. It serves no good. It's dead. Dead wood. Burn it. And there's more where that came from. We can take this dead wood, we can clear it out, and we can leave us behind a good tree that bears fruit, has got what it needs to have. One of the wonderful things you can do with olive trees, they're very easily grafted. Let me explain what I mean. Typically you want a sharp knife, not a dull set of loppers. But let's say you find a really good branch that you like that's producing, this is from, a, let's say, a wild olive tree, but one that's still producing pretty well. You can take your, your really sharp knife, and you can cut that branch off. And you've got a branch. You can come into the main tree that you've got. You can do a cut on the bark of the tree, and actually take this branch and slide it into that cut. Once you've done that, you want to take some type of of material and wrap it around till it heals. But you can do that and that limb that you have put onto the tree will grow from the sap of that tree and produce olives. It's a way of taking your basic tree and bringing in good fruitful branches from wild trees, putting them on your tree to bear fruit. It's a good idea. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. I'm sorry. This talk about olives has kind of got me hungry. So uh, I'm going to eat these. and You just just do your thing. (laughs) Thank my daughter Rachel for the help there on the camera work. It's useful to know because Paul does something with that analogy. And if we understand how olives work, we'll understand what Paul's doing. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 11. And here's what he's saying. He's asking what happened to the, uh, uh, to the Jews. How did, this, how did this take place? And what does it mean for the Gentiles? And I'm going to pick up in Romans chapter 11 with verse 16... ...where he starts talking about how the dough offered as first fruits is holy... ...so is a holy lump. And then he starts this analogy. He says, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off... ...and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others... And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember. It's not you who support the root. It's the root that supports you. Oh, you will say branches were broken off. So I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand fast through faith. And he continues on down. We'll leave some of this out for a second in the interest of time and and focus. But he continues to say, um, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. Because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Here's the analogy that Paul's using. Paul's saying... Paul's saying that there is a tree. And the tree that we see above the ground has roots that grow down into the ground. And those roots... Are the patriarchs. Those roots are Abraham. Isaac. Jacob. These are the faithful of the Old Testament. They form roots. And these roots nourish and feed the tree. What we're going to see though. Is that tree itself. Has branched out. And some of those branches out of the tree have been very good and thick, vibrant branches that bring lots of life themselves. And some of them are old, dead, rotten branches that needed to be cut off and taken out because they bear no fruit. And so that's what we have. We have, we have a number of these. Now, Paul says this was the promise that God made through Abraham and the others. And that promise has been fulfilled. That tree has grown. But the promise was never for all of the offspring. The promise was for certain select offspring. And a number of the the offspring have been pruned away because of their unbelief. And the Gentiles have now come in and been grafted on so that you've got new branches that are coming into this tree that are branches that come from the gentiles and God's able if Jews are believing to graft them back on too but this is the tree of promise God didn't fail in his promise he's kept his word and so it's not a matter of of contestant number 1 the Jews were replaced by the gentiles no The Gentiles in the church live in the tree that has for its foundations the patriarchs and the promises of God. Christians, the Christian Bible is not the New Testament. The Christian Bible has a New Testament and an Old Testament. But you can no more take away the Old Testament and the men of faith and the promises of God and still have the church than you can take away the roots in the trunk and still claim you've got a growing vibrant tree. And that's Paul's analogy. That's what Paul's, that's what Paul's trying to say. And it would have meant a lot to folks who truly were the, the farmers in their day who understood the nature of the olive trees. And certainly in Rome, they understood those things. The olive trees were the main source of revenue uh, uh, for many people because they produced not only the olive fruit, but the olive oil, which was used in lamps and and other things as well. So um, you've you've got a tremendous analogy going here. Now, we don't want to leave the analogy all the way because Paul takes it a step further. Let's uh, uh, put onto the PowerPoint. Paul says, not only do we have a remnant always within, uh, in a tree sense, but God has even set out a new and a better covenant. Look at the language Paul uses in, in this regard in Corinthians. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3... In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, for example. Paul is talking about him uh, him and, and the folks he was working with. And he says that God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The Greek word for covenant. My daughter Rachel's here today. She's a Greek scholar right now. She's taking first year Greek. Rachel, it's diatheke Is the word for for uh, uh, covenant? It means uh, Mike Riddle. It's like a last will and testament. That was your disposition of your property. That's the way you you dispose of. It. So God has made Paul a minister of a new covenant, a new disposition of property. Look at verse sixteen where he contrasts it with the old, or verse fourteen. He's talking about unbelieving Jews that their minds were hardened to this day when they read the old covenant. That same veil remains unlifted only through Christ is it taken away. And he's contrasting in this chapter then an old covenant with a new. Well, what what does that do to our diagram? What Paul says is is that those promises of God to Abraham were totally met. In Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ received every promise of God. Jesus has not just the inheritance of the promised land, he has the inheritance of the earth. Jesus Christ reigns in victory over Satan. Jesus is in a position through his victory to wipe away the old. And restore it with the new. Jesus is the one who has the authority to call down a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21. Jesus is the one who has the authority. Because he has totally received all of God's gifts. And rightfully so. Because Jesus lived up to his end. As well as a perfect man. And so now people who are receiving after Christ, are receiving from a new covenant. There's something new. And it had been prophesied in the Old Testament. This wasn't something from left field. This was something that Isaiah had talked about. Jeremiah talks about God putting a new covenant that's not going to be written in tablets of stone, but it's going to be written in the hearts of men. This is a covenant that doesn't say, you do these things and I'll do those things. This is a covenant of unconditional love. This is a covenant that says, I forgive you because I love you, I chose you, I paid the price for your sins. This is a covenant that goes far beyond do's and don'ts on a tablet. This is a covenant that reaches into your very heart and changes who you are and transforms you. This is a covenant that takes a person and allows them to be born again. This is a covenant where the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. This is a covenant to use David's uh, uh, preaching this morning from Paul's analogy in Colossians 3. This is a covenant that cleaned out the closet and got rid of all the old clothes that stunk and were rotten even though you thought they were something special and replaced them with holy garments washed in the blood of the Lamb that are pure, and that are white, and that could never be mistaken for clothes of the old man. That's what Paul's saying here. And so how does it apply? Where does it take us? What does it do? Well, it gives us An understanding that the church, God's holy people of the new covenant, never vitiated or or changed or diverted or did away with God's old plan. God's old plan isn't on hold for Israel. God's promises were not substituted in by the church. No, those promises are all part of a grand tree that God saw from the beginning. And the promises were legitimately given to Abraham. Legitimately given to Isaac. Legitimately given to to Jacob. Because they were the roots. And through them came Jesus Christ. The recipient of all that God had willed and disposed of. And through Him now, we get grafted into the tree. Even though genetically we're not part. Now what about the unbelieving Jews? Well, Paul says... They get cut off like dead branches. But that's not because God's taken away his word. God's always that way. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That wasn't, by the way, to my good Presbyterian friends, a driving verse as Paul's writing about predestination. If we take it within the context of his analogy, I'm not saying that that there's not scripture to support predestination and scripture to to support predestination. Free choice. I'm not getting into the debate. I'm merely saying that this is a passage where Paul's driving home a point that's not that. His point is God has always said it's going this direction. This is what the tree looks like. And God knew from the beginning that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Because everyone can get grafted into the tree if they believe in Jesus. And if they don't, they can get snipped out. It, you can't just get in because you, you're a genetic Jew. That's, that's contestant number three. Now, one of the possible glitches here is what does this say about the future? Because Paul's got some pretty uh, 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 strong things to say about the future if we go back to Romans 11. Starting with, say, verse 25. Let's go there. Romans eleven twenty-five. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And he's got two passages here out of Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because their disobedience... So they too have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now this is a very difficult passage to chart through. And I want to give you in the few minutes we've got left here a couple of ideas. Again, this is a class that's not, uh, we could spend a good month on this. And still have some some questions. This is a class to give you a framework to go do your own study. First of all, there is quite a debate over what Paul means when he says, In this way, all Israel will be saved as it's written. By all Israel, does Paul mean the whole tree? The Jews and the Gentiles that have been grafted in. The children of Abraham by faith, as Paul calls them in other places, as opposed to by genetics. It's very possible that's what he means. He's just saying that everyone within a group. We've always got to be careful when we read the biblical word all. Because uh, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean every absolute thing the way ours does. The Greek word pas, pon, means means um, everything within a group. Like when it said that all Uh, Jerusalem went out to be baptized by John the Baptist. That didn't include Pilate probably and a whole bunch of the high priests and a whole bunch of people. You know, it it just meant all of that group that went, went. Um, In this way, all Israel will be saved. So that may just mean that Paul's talking about the tree. I don't think that Paul is saying there that every genetic Jew will be saved. Because I think that is contrary to what he's already told us about Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated, but uh, you know i'll I'll be able to tell you definitively um in heaven the <laughs> though it may take me a few millennium up there to even figure it out, but it's one of those things I'm going to check into, and um in this way, all Israel will be saved. Here's the thrust of what he's saying. That God will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now does this mean. You know people. I guarantee you if I don't say something. Someone's going to come up and ask me this. Are you saying that prophetically. God's not going to redeem a bunch of Jews at the end of time. And that they're going to have possession of the Holy Land. And so if that's what you were going to come ask me. Let me answer it. No I'm not saying that at all. And it's very clear to me that there is going to be a major redemption of some Jews. And I think God has got to be behind Jewish occupation of some of the Holy Land. I can't see how else it could happen right now. But I'm also telling you that the thrust of this, the thrust of this is to understand the tree. And that we all belong to the same tree. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile in the church. Oh, we could say uh, uh, chronologically the Jew got it first. Paul says that in places. But at this point in time, if you have a Jewish brother or sister, they're a Jewish brother and sister. If you're a Gentile, you're not a a half accepted person. You're you're a full part of the church. This is what Paul has to say for us. And so um, uh, God has God's future. And uh, uh, that fits in under either category two or three, contestant two or three. So will the real Israel please stand up? I'm voting number three, that the real Israel of those promises is the tree that starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and branches out as God has willed it to. And it includes Jew and Gentile alike as he's grafted in and pruned the tree. So with that, coming attractions, what do we have? We've still got to talk about the purpose of the church. Why do we have this thing going on? And what are the roles and and, and organization of the church? How does it all fit together? Uh, Why do some churches have pastors and some churches don't? Elders, deacons, presbyters, popes, cardinals, bishops. What does Paul have to say about church structure? And uh, we'll talk about that as well. Points for home. First, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God's word has not failed. It never has. It never will. God has the promises you and I can rely on. And it doesn't just apply to difficult passages of scripture. It applies to difficult circumstances in life. God's given you promises. Don't let Satan ever beguile you into disbelieving those promises. He's given promises. As simple as the clothing that David talked about this morning. But he's given you promises. Rest on those. Indwell those. Live on those. Rely on them. Second, Paul said, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, this is a covenant that we have. And I got to tell you, this is the best covenant. I wouldn't trade it for all the land in Israel. What would you rather have? All the land in Israel? Oh, All the world are in intimate relationship with God through eternity because he forgave you every sin you've committed and every sin you will commit. I'm going for the latter. Last point. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the crucified Savior, then you are God's chosen people. You're grafted into the tree. Praise the Lord. We're chosen people. And it's a wonderful place to be. Would you pray with me? Lord, forgive us when we try to put you into our boxes and put you into our models Lord, I think it's a natural part of us to try and understand you in our terms. But we confess to you that we need your revelation. We confess to you that we need security of you and not security of just where we've always stood. Father, may we stand upon your promises, may we stand upon your word. May we stand with confidence as we see what you've done in the past. Knowing full well that you will take care of the future. And certainly confident that you have our today. You have chosen us Lord as your people. It is a great honor to be your people. And I pray your blessings on your people today. Through Jesus our Lord our Savior we pray amen.